there's this social psychological construct called self-monitoring where there are some people who are more inclined to be the right person at the right place at the right time and they will adjust to the environment that's around them and they won't necessarily deviate so if it's the case where a person is raised in a religious family they will subscribe to those cues hey good morning good afternoon good evening ladies and gents depending on when you're listening to this my name is gray jabesi and this is another episode of the gray ave podcast and if you're listening to this podcast for the first time uh this is a podcast about learning really uh what i do is that i, I find those people that you would want to talk to and learn something from uh, but you can't because you're busy with work and you know the everyday life and you know these people are spread out across the world so it's my job to go around there and meet and talk with these people and then I get to learn whatever they ha- are more knowledgeable about so it's mostly related to business and technology but these are lessons that you can apply in every aspect of your life so it can be you know company CEOs it can be um scientists or in all sorts of experts in different uh types of uh industries anyway so today we have another exciting guest uh we have Dr. Demon Bryant and he is a business psychologist so i'm just going to give you a little uh summary of what he does and then we're going to get into the podcast but this is definitely one of my favorite podcasts this year i have to say because i learned a lot so dr demon bryant is a business psychologist with over 15 years of experience in data analytics and psychological assessment tools currently the ceo of lightpaycoin a next generation crypto focused on digital payments in business and government his expertise is in psycho- psychological and behavior assessments with an emphasis on ai based systems and behavioral economics he has derived mathematical information functions to quantify the usefulness of any observable behavior by humans and humans or machines he has also conceived and developed the internet based smart test technology platform and artificially intelligent assessment system i don't know why i'm breaking there i need coffee and his research is published in several professional journals including applied psychological measurement the journal of managerial psychology international journal of testing and psychometrica past honors include ibm's young innovator award for developing human resource software for use in international markets Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology Robert J Wherry Award for research in the area of test bias and a letter of commendation from the Louisiana State Senate for developing and administering an internet-based police officer assessment center after Hurricane Katrina. So he's a hell of a man uh and I don't think this uh summary I just read does him justice but you know uh you guys can definitely look him up he's also an author uh and i would actually recommend that you find his book it's called flow an information based theory of challenge skill balance so i hope you guys check it out the authors are obviously uh dr brand and his 
co-author who he actually talked about uh, in in the podcast. His name is Larry Davis. So anyway, let's get into the uh, the interview. Some of the things that we talked about actually. Everything is around surrounds the subject of psychology, of course, but we talk about psychometrics and behavior behavioral economics to be specific. So without wasting too much of your guys' time, I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did. You can also follow Damon on uh, Twitter. His name is Damon Bryant, PhD. Uh, but his Twitter handle is at Dr. Damon Bryant. At Dr. Damon Bryant. So enjoy the podcast. And if you're new, remember to subscribe and give me a five star review on iTunes. Enjoy. Man, just taking a day at a time, trying to weather the storm, keep investors happy and calm. Right. <laughs> As usual. <laughs> yeah, the daily stuff. It sounds exciting. Where, where are you based at the moment? Uh, actually, I'm in Dallas, Texas. Okay. You from there? I was born and raised in Florida. Okay. And then I moved here when I married my my wife and I. We got married. And then my my first startup after I exited my built my first startup here it was an AI company. And then we've been here ever since. Right, and you, it seems like you went to Howard University, right? Howard University, yes, sir. And that's my alma mater. Love it to death. <laughs> I, I hated I hated it when I was there. Why? There the, so the, there's a lot of great people, people who came from there. I mean, uh, Sean Combs is, went there as well, right? Oh yeah, um, P did. Yeah, he was yeah. actually on. He left the the year, the year before I came on campus. But even though he did come back with his little groups and um, when you had Biggie Smalls and all those other guys that he was forming at, at Bad Boys, so he did visit, visit campus a lot. Um, but I just I, I didn't like the campus because it was inefficient. And a lot of people would complain that it's inefficient. But after you leave and you're like, okay, when I reflect back, it's one of the best experiences that I had in my life. Wow. <laughs> well, could you give an example of why you, when you think about it now, you're like, okay, maybe that, that was great. One, it, it gave me a, a, a strong sense of self, uh, understanding the people who attended Howard, the people who graduated and went on to do great things. Um, the ability to build self-efficacy and the scientific research shows this um, people who go and attend HBCU for undergrads they have the highest attainment of advanced degrees than not than blacks who attend uh, primarily white institutions and it, it has something to do with the water I guess <laughs> <laughs> that's a very very interesting observation though Yes, it was actually that was published by uh, the Educational Testing Service in Princeton, New Jersey, and the, the evidence is is overwhelming. So people always ask, "What's the value of an HBCU?" Um, you can look at the statistics time and time again. Um, students who graduate from HBCUs, students who are of who are from the diaspora, black students, they outperform their black peers who attend primarily white institutions for undergraduate. So it's something about the level of self-efficacy, the ability to hustle, being gritty, um, navigating through a, a difficult environment. I guess it, in a sense, it, it hardens you up in a way to prepare for the real world. Even though some people argue, well, you know, it's an all-black school. You're not getting that 
quality um, education of a diverse environment. Well, you have to work on yourself. I, I, and I believe that truly to really understand and reprogram like what's happened in understanding American history, where we fit into that context and trying to come into our full being. So that was one of the things that Howard it gave me a great appreciation taking um, the class Black Diaspora and being forced to research your family history, even though I, I thought it was no big deal then. But as I began to dig more and more, I was like, wow, I have a rich family history and I didn't even know about it. But then I heard bits and I had heard bits and pieces as a kid. But I never really pieced it all together when my family would say, well, you know, your dad was in World War. Your dad was in World War II. And then I found my great uncle. He was in World War One and wrote a book. And my great great grandfather was actually he fought in the Civil War and and literally for freedom. So in essence, raiding slave plantations and where I was raised, it was the case that we um, we went ahead and settled well the soldiers the black soldiers after the war once once lee surrendered to, to grant at appomattox they mustered those units out of service and in essence those black soldiers end up settling on those base camps in the south where they were um, engaging in and launching battles so um that's where i my family where i was born and raised in orange mills florida Interesting. Um, I think I heard the same uh, when it comes to uh, HPUs. I heard the same sort of narrative from Dr. Sowell. Um, is it is it Dr. Sowell? I think he is, yeah. Um, he's an American economist. He's a very interesting. Thomas Sowell. I don't know if you ever read any Thomas of his. Thomas Sowell? Yeah. I read mm -hmm. one of his books and it talks about uh, the university situation as well. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, sure, and a lot of those schools were named after um, Civil War generals. And at, as a matter of fact, my I was named after my great uncle who died in Normandy, who was named after General Grant. So my middle name is Ulysses. So Ulysses S. Grant was one of the generals during the Civil War. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I think your, uh, your generation is still quite very connected to the war uh, behind you guys. Very interesting uh, break of history. And I think it's important to know because yes. it gives you a sense of self, a sense of pride in your orientation relative to what's happening today. Because in a sense, I think we're moving backwards to some degree. Oh, yeah, I, I can agree with that. And also, I think embedding a name like that historically, actually, it gives you a very sense of self to like, you know, it's easier to look back or to refer back to uh, where you come from. So sure, such sure. a small, a small detail, but quite very important when you think about it. Um, so let's jump into what you're doing now. Uh, okay. how, how, when you go at a dinner party, how do you break it down? Like, who are you? Well, usually at a dinner party, I, I try not to introduce myself as Dr. Bryant. So I introduce myself as Damon, and as the conversation moves along, and as people attempt to gauge where you are in terms of your your orientation, your socioeconomic status, and then that's when I begin to move. I'm, I'm, I'm Dr. Bryant. I have a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology. I got my degree from the University of Central Florida. I graduated from Howard University. Uh, but my PhD is in industrial and organizational psychology with a focus in quantitative psychology, which includes areas of psychology such as behavioral economics, psychometrics, 
and in particular, when we talk about psychometrics, then we begin to talk about intelligence. And also intelligence leads us into not only human intelligence, but artificial intelligence as well. Wow. Um, so um, it's fascinating, both of those subjects, behavioral economics and psychometrics. So let's start by establishing each one of those. I mean, briefly, how could you just run them through? What are they? Because I'm sure they will, they will pretty much be most part of our conversation. Sure. Um, when, we're t when talking about behavior economics, it's really an area established by two psychologists who end up winning uh, Nobel Prizes in economics for their work on judgment in judgment and decision making. These two individuals, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, uh, one of the main areas within behavioral economics is framing. How do you how certain things are framed despite the statistical probabilities associated with those events, people respond differently based upon how it's framed. For example, if I had you to quickly respond to me uh, about a question of attending, of going to a particular hospital, say you got injured and you had the choice of going to a hospital and it was somewhat a life-threatening injury where you could you could live and you could perhaps die. And if I quickly ask you the question, okay, would you rather attend, would you attend this hospital where you have a 50% chance of life or would you attend a hospital where you have a 50% chance of death? Immediately, people would, would tend to answer, <laughs> I want to go to the hospital where I have a 50% chance of life. But statistically, it's the exact same thing. But it's just a matter of how it's phrased that individuals would respond differently on that framing. So that, that's one area of behavioral economics or that really helped pro propel psychology more into the, the limelight of business, finance, economics, and, and just in general in, in making decisions, uh, life-changing decisions, and even low-stakes decisions as well. Um, there's another area where of behavioral economics where people use heuristics. And with heuristics, these are quick shortcuts that we use to make decisions. We don't put a lot of cognitive effort into it, um, but yet for the most part, sometimes it's accurate. In other circumstances, these heuristics are, they can lead to um, very bad decisions and bad judgments. Um, the, a, a third, and, and if we can, for instance, uh, we can talk about some, some other areas of, of heuristics and attributions and, um, and how they actually play out in, in market decisions. Uh, and it's something that I noticed all, uh, a lot, in, particularly as I began to do work in the cryptocurrency space, founding LightPayCoin, um, also developing the, the LotusCoin project, is that within the member communities, it's the case that I'll see these attribution errors play out depending on the market price, uh, depending on... Uh, of a particular cryptocurrency on an exchange. For instance, um, the one um, attribution error that people make in 
in the cryptocurrency space when making trades or, or watching a particular asset is in uh, external attribution error. And a great example of this, and I was talking to my um, my the, the communities um, on a weekly basis. I give webinars and I, I try to give a summary around the statistics, um, what's happening in the community, and begin to talk about some areas um, of how the decisions that are being made by some community members and the, the claims that they're making are actually biases. And unless they have sufficient evidence to support it objectively, then it's it can be easily placed into a bias that individuals make. For instance, with um, external attribution bias, when a person engages in an environment or makes a decision, then they would observe how that decision plays out in terms of a positive or a negative outcome. If it's the case, for instance, if we were buying Bitcoin, and we bought Bitcoin at $6,000. $6, if the price of Bitcoin goes to $7,000 and you begin to say to yourself, hey, the price of Bitcoin has gone up. I like that. That feels good. That's good for me because I made a smart investment decision. All of a sudden, you're attributing, attributing to yourself that positive outcome. You made the investment at $6,000. The price went up to $7,000. As a consequence, you're increasing your self-efficacy, your self-esteem, and you attribute it to yourself. Now, say for instance, you make the same investment of Bitcoin, you purchase Bitcoin for $6,000, and all of a sudden it goes to $4,000. Now, you see the price of Bitcoin drop. It drops. You're not feeling good. As a result, you're as humans, we attempt to protect our self-esteem. And as a because of that, we don't necessarily place blame immediately on us. We try to find other reasons outside of ourselves to to say that's the cause of it. One may say, well, you know, uh, the the government is saying bad things about uh, bad things about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular, or the it's the case that there are bots trading on different exchanges that's dumping on the price. And as there's some market manipulation going on, it's the case you're not necessarily blaming yourself for that, that the decrease in the, the, the price or, but in the case of increasing in the price, you, you attribute, attribute that positive action to yourself, that the decision that you made was a good decision, but in the case of it, the price going down and you want to find some reason why the price went down. So you go blaming other things and placing it outside of yourself. And, and instead of saying, OK, it was something that just it happens in the market. But yet I'm making these attribution errors about what's going on. But that's just another example of uh, what's happening in or give a general description of heuristics. Um, attributions, um, framing, and also one of the last areas within uh, behavioral economics is market inefficiencies. And we, and we could talk about that um, a little bit later as well, because that not only plays into economic markets, but also inefficiencies within organizations as well. Um, as an INO psychologist, one of the things that we look for or attempt to do is to apply psychological principles in organizations to make them more efficient and the people in them more efficient as well. So. That's just one area or, or a variety of different areas when you begin to break down some of the subcomponents within behavioral economics.
Awesome, incredible. Uh, it just uh, looking at the crypto market and what happens actually perfectly make, makes sense. It definitely defines uh, pretty much any token holder. Uh, they all believe that their, their token is the best and when you make a good trade, you feel you feel the best. Bad things happen. No, it's the uh, it's the whales and everything else. Um, now let's jump onto no, it's, no, no, no. I'll I'll correct you on that one. It's it's the developers. They're taking the pre mine and dumping on the market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always someone to blame. <laughs> oh, it, it never fails. Anytime the price dips, even though we know there's huge amounts of volatility. But then it's the case, it never fails. Anytime the price is up in terms of DMs or Twitter messages or emails, I don't I don't I rarely get any emails at all or any messages um when the price is the price is up and everything's going good. But when it when the price dips or there's a, a correction or some some type of pullback, oh man, I get it. So <laughs> I, I expect it, I understand it. I understand it. It's an attribution error. So it's one of the things that I, I attempt to just rationalize with with whoever's making the, the direct message or laying the claim either in a public forum or on a, on a discord chat or within e within an email uh, i'll explain rationally some of the things that that i see happening and then just walk them through the process and then they feel a bit better um but it's the case i know it's a, i know it's an attribution error so i i can deal with it right so let's jump into psychometrics sure psychometrics um really is an area that was developed to support psychological testing and measuring human intelligence. As if, if when you begin to talk about intelligence, um, you can find hundreds of definitions from hundreds of different um, uh, publications and from different authors trying to define what is human intelligence. Uh, there is no agreed upon definition, but in general, it's how how human beings would adapt to their environment to accomplish desired goals. And it's, it's very, it's, it's very general form, but if you would go, if looking at the literature, <clears throat> there are some uh, psychologists who argue that the, that a, a good definition, even though they don't define really what intelligence is, they say a good definition of intelligence is one that is aligned with biology and how we evolve as human beings not necessarily saying that it's purely a purely an innate or genetic characteristic but it is one as we evolve and interact with the environment so it's an interaction of both some biological characteristics and some environmental characteristics so it's the interaction of the two and you can see this when we study in biology the concept or if some of you are familiar with the concept of hormesis of how organisms uh, adapt to their environment um, and a good example of this within biology when you talk about let's let's say within toxicology if i were to give you a, a medication um, such as acetaminophen or, uh, or over another over-the-counter drug like ibuprofen or aspirin. If I gave you a little bit over-the-counter, you would take it and you might have a headache and you take one, it doesn't do anything. Say it took a couple hours, you take two. Now you take two and your headache is now, um, it's now being soothed. 
by taking the uh, over-the-counter medication. Now, if that is your body adjusting the first time that you took it, nothing happened because it was low dose. It was low dose and still attempting to stimulate you in a way. Once you took two, it did stimulate you enough to soothe the pain. However, if I gave you an entire bottle of aspirin and I told you to take it, guess what? You're going to die <laughs> because it's at the point where your body can't adjust or adapt to that much aspirin or ibuprofen being introduced to it at once. That external agent or toxin, being it's no longer beneficial to you. Initially, it's low-dose stimulation. Um, when you're taking one to two, so it's stimulating you, but yet when I'm giving you too much, there's going to be some um, high-dose inhibition. So it's the case that it's going to be harmful and it won't help you. That's just in a biological sense. Think about this physically when adapting to the environment. If you're trying to become stronger, um, going into the weight room, um, it doesn't make sense for you, we say we're doing a bench press or a deadlift, let's, let's do bench press, and you want to start out bench press five sets of five, and you start out with, say, 500 pounds. No, you're going to kill yourself because you're not. once you get it off the rack, it's going to press directly in your chest. You won't have enough strength to put, unless you're really, really, really strong and you, you have exercise and you're used to it. But if you're not used to it and you're someone who doesn't work out, that weight is going to hurt you really, really bad. It's like trying to run a marathon and you've done absolutely no training at all. It's going to hurt you. But if you started out with something small, Say you, you did five sets of five of 35 pounds on a bench press. You can do that for a week and then move up 40 pounds, 50 pounds. It's that similar concept of, of adding a little bit more, uh, a little higher dosage of the medication. So now you're adapting to the environment. That's from a, we looked at it from a biological level. Then we looked at the example with lifting weights on a physical level, how you're adjusting and adapting over time and you're becoming stronger. But now from a psychological level, it's the same aspect when we talk about engaging in different environments. Um, if things are threatening to you, uh, it's the case you would attempt to withdraw um, from that environment until you have you perceive that you can attempt to challenge that particular threat at a certain point in time. So building your self-esteem, uh, being able to accomplish goals one, one set at a time, and then entering into this optimal state of performance, just like a particular drug, there's a certain point where it has its optimal level of impact in the body in, in soothing pain and in lifting weights, there's this optimal amount of weight that you can lift um, that's a, the maximum point of of effectiveness from a physical standpoint. From a psychological standpoint, now we're getting into this this concept called flow, or it's it's the optimal state of engagement. It's the optimal state for learning, skill acquisition, and performance. And that's one of the things that we haven't necessarily applied within organizations. Um, at all. But when we talk about psychometrics, psychometrics tends or attempts to quantify these psychological characteristics so we can understand what are the maximum levels of performance where we can place individuals in certain roles and they will perform well. I know it was a long explanation, but <laughs> just tried to give you some. Yeah, but you know, I think 
pretty much everyone now has a very good understanding of it by now. Uh, so my question is now, like, how how old were you when you developed an interest in psychology? Sure. Um, it really started. My my, and as background, my my grandfather, he was a minister, even though I. Uh, he died before I was born, but I did. I have my older sister. She was born uh, right, say right after World War II, and it was the case that she was a psychology major and was also a minister. Um, I took an interest in psychology at Howard University. I didn't have any psychology courses in high school, but I was influenced by this very. Uh, Popular. I didn't know he was that popular at the time when I was a student. Um, named Dr. Curtis Banks. He was a, a Stanford graduate who was a professor at Howard. He was my psychology professor, and he talked about how people could change according to the situation and not necessarily driven or individuals being or changing their behavior according to their personality. So for me, taking that particular course for taught by Dr. Banks, I understood that behavior is not necessarily driven by a person's or individual's personality. So if you think if someone's extroverted, they're going to be extroverted in a wide variety of different contexts. Um, If someone is achievement striving, they're going to be achievement striving in a wide variety of different situations. Taking that particular course began to shape my perception around this is a young science. It's a baby science when you think about mathematics and, and how robust it is or physics. Um, compared to these hard sciences, psychology is very, very young. It gave me, and I began to think about psychology as an area where I could begin to make an impact. So Dr. Curtis Banks, just to give a little bit of background on him, he was the student of Phil Zimbardo, um, who was the American Psychological APA, American Psychological Association president, and also the lead author of the Stanford Prison Study. This is a course or individuals in college in their first course, if they take intro to psychology, they learn about the Stanford Prison Study, how situations and the context of a situation can modify or change an individual's behavior and how they orient themselves People who are very normal, who are, say, nice or generally have a a positive disposition can be shaped or the situation can be strong enough where cues are placed in the environment where they become hostile, very angry, um, very mean, uh, aggressive, and antagonistic towards anyone who attempts to engage them in that particular setting to the degree that those cues are strong enough to elicit that. So Dr. Zimbardo, um, this was back in the 70s when he did this study with my professor, Dr. Curtis Banks, in, in showing that person that personality is not the primary predictor of behavior. So now this goes back once again to that how some part of the individual, how they interact with the environment, these two things combine to produce behavior. So that began to lead me into things such as social intelligence, um, general human intelligence, and how these things can be um, shaped within organizational settings to increase productivity, 
understanding politicians, for instance. Politicians are very attuned to what's going on around them physically. Um, Lawyers, say trial lawyers, um, they are very adaptive and great at adjusting, being the right person at the right place at the right time. However, there are some individuals who are more dispositionally driven and not necessarily situationally driven, but they're more prag they're more principled in their approach. So they use these their internal dispositions, their personalities, their values, their attitudes, and their beliefs to guide behavior. So that's when I began to look more into social intelligence, um, human intelligence, and really trying to put it together because it's once again, psychology is very, 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 very young. It's a young discipline. Very few laws exist. Um, so it's the case. I, I, that's why I decided to move into the space because I, I thought it was an area where I could make a great contribution, particularly in the, in the area of, of quantitative psychology and psychometrics because there's so many myths about intelligence and stereotypes about certain groups and how they perform that totally when you look at the literature and actually just the context of of humans when you look at the lessons of history or there's a nice book um, uh, the lessons of history that actually addresses the issue and it's uh, it begins to turn some of the the notions that what we think of intelligence and different groups on on its head um, but that's one of the main reasons why I decided to enter into psychology because it was so young and and could be um, like for a lot of innovation, just like cryptocurrencies to this day. Awesome. Uh, and be, before that, before I, I move into the next yeah. question, uh, why, like in, during your childhood, what did you think that you're going to end up doing or what did you want it to become? Well, um, during my childhood, I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very I good answer. My, my, <laughs> yes, my, my great aunt, my grandmother, she was born deaf. Um, and she died when I was when I was six years old. No, yeah, when I was six years old, my great aunts took over. Her sisters they took over and helped to raise me. It was the case I had a sister who was attending Vanderbilt um, and was getting her her PhD in business. Um, and actually, she ended up becoming a banker, working for J.P. Morgan Chase and and actually Wells Fargo at the same time uh, after um, J.P. Morgan Chase, but she ran a little uh, small bank in Chicago first before taking on those roles. But she was getting her PhD at the time of, at Vanderbilt. I had another brother who was at the University of Florida who was getting his um, MD. Um, so he was becoming a medical doctor and I had another, like I said, other siblings who were pursuing their advanced degrees and she, my great aunt told me then, very young, you're going to be a doctor, just like your brothers and sisters. So at that point in time, when anyone asked me, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? I said, I'm going to be a doctor, just like my brothers and sisters. So it was a, <laughs> a script. But understand the context. <clears throat> my great aunt, her father was, um, was born in bondage um, in, in 1864. In America, you know, the Civil War didn't end until 1865. Um, but it was a case he was born in bondage. So having her father being born in bondage and understanding the how far we had to go here in America considering that we were not even considered citizens but were considered property that's something 
um, that it has a, has an impact on you to be a descendant of a kidnapped African and be placed into the United States and have this second world or second class um, status. So it was something that, that I considered as being able to make the family proud, um, to establish ourselves as first class citizens in this country. And once again, looking at the family family history and how we contributed not only to the, the freedom of kidnapped Africans raiding slave plantations during the Civil War, but also in World War in World War One, great uncles fought at the Battle of Verdun um, in France. In World War II, my father was all, was in France. In addition to another one of my great uncles, who actually fought and died at Normandy, so it was the case. Seeing that history and and having that context and saying, "Hey, we contributed to America in terms of its ideal, perceived ideals that what we're striving for." Even though America has a long way to go, even to this day, so I, I thought it was it was definitely a family obligation. Um, in terms of the goals that were given to me, and I'm quite sure that they had some goals that were placed upon them because it, it, it was an obligation in order to make the family look good, make your community look good, make right. your country out. So that's the case. That's interesting that you say that. Um, so you were very in tune with your history. I really admire that. <laughs> Not many people that I've heard who constantly refers to history or their own history for that matter. Um, so on what you said about intelligence and behavior, there is a lot of different um, research done upon it, or I think it depends on which fields the person who's talking is coming from. To a lot of chemi- uh, people in the chemistry domain, they would, tell, they would like to say that, well, a lot of human behavior is driven by you know, chemical reactions in your brain. Uh, and it's not like something that you can control. Uh, as much as intelligence itself as well, general human intelligence, uh, whatever that means, uh, since you also established already that, you know, there's not a, there is not a kind of a perfect consensus for it. Uh, how do you come to a conclusion? I, I mean, where do these two concepts meet? In uh, Looking at the biological aspect of it and the uh, psychological factor that you bring in. Sure. Um, and I'll go back to the example and, and frame this from the, the biology example I, I talked about earlier. When there's an at the microorganism level <clears throat> when the micro or when an organism is or has been introduced to an external toxin that external toxin can impose or, or stimulate that organism where the organism will either absorb and engage in some type of reaction or behavior or it can not necessarily react to that toxin. If it's not reacting, then it's what we call that low-dose stimulation. If it's at the point where it's overreacting or it kills the organism, then it's, it's high-dose inhibition because it's, it's toxic at, at a certain point. But in, in, at the lower ends of the spectrum, it's not doing anything to stimulate it. So using that biological concept to move forward and you talk about chemicals from a, a neuro when you talk about neurotransmitters that are responsible for say 
aspects around learning and skill acquisition. The human is engaging in a process of intake of information from the environment. So there's an input, there's some processing that's going on internally, and there is a response. For instance, looking at a math question on a piece of paper, two plus two equals four. Visualizing that as a student looking at a piece of paper, that individual is processing that information, which is causing some type of stimulation, the visual stimulation at, a, a, at the very bare minimum and then it's the aspect where there's some cognitive processing going on, where there's either some working memory around the phonological loop or visual spatial sketch pad. And I'm, I'm right now, and I'm using a, a, a framework, um, a working memory capacity framework by Baddeley, um, when some proponents argue that working memory capacity is intelligence is working memory capacity how much information can you process how much information can you begin to combine to and reason with in order to make a decision so it's consistent with that notion of chemical reactions in the sense that there's some processing of external information in order to elicit some type of response from the biological perspective you're looking at it from an interact in an organism at this at this point, we're talking about a human being interacting with the external environment, say a math question or being able to cross the street um, without being hit by a car. That's that's intelligent. If you can get across the if you can get across the street without getting hit, um, that increases your probability of survival. So now it's consistent with all three of those definitions across the biological standpoint, the, from the chemical perspective and also from the, the psychological standpoint as well when you begin to say how do individuals navigate through their environment to become a leader of an organization to get a higher pay in order to increase the standard of living for themselves as opposed to someone who would like to become a leader they can't can't be a leader or they're unable to become a leader they're unable to get a job as a consequence they're making a very low wage or they're making no wage at all and now they're beginning to question their ability to survive so now it goes back full fold to the original definition from coming from biology and even some of the concepts from Darwin's survival of the fittest. How do you adapt to your environment to accomplish certain desired ends? Does that make sense? Yes, yes, clearly. That's, that's a very good answer. So then from your aspect, um, from your definition or explanation, then I suppose things like you would explain in, in your psychological um, definition, then you would define things like crime as uh, survival of the fetus, which is a Darwinian as well. Eh? And, and those are those are responses to the environment, and th that because of the cues in the environment, those are the behaviors in which the individuals placed within that context. That's what they're using in order to survive. If that makes sense, right? Um, so, so how do you define greed, for example? Because then sometimes, so in context of corruption, you know, those are things that people do not because they're not able to survive, but obviously for to fulfill some of the needs that they have. And in those positions, one could make a different decision. The same people in this of the same position could make a different decision of on a certain subject. But, you know, one would choose to be corrupt and the other one would not choose to be corrupt. How do you define those kind of biases? So, and we can look at it from, from two different perspectives. Where one, where 
it's a dispositional component where it's a part of an individual where they're dr- they have a high need for power. And power, you're looking at power if you want to dis- define it in terms of position power as, say, for instance, serving as a president of a corporation or having influence over people who are able to make very life-changing decisions over others. Now, in that, looking at it from that dispositional standpoint, a person could have a personality disposition, a high need for power, or they could say, I would like to acquire power, and they take on this personality. There's a personality characteristic that's actually called Machiavellianism where they're striving to accomplish the, their goal by any means necessary, even to the degree where it's not necessarily moral. Um, but the ends justifies the means. In that sense, you have a dispositional or personality component that's driving behavior. Now, looking at it from a, a contextual standpoint or situational or interactionist perspective, there are certain cues that are in the environment. Say you have a CEO, this person might have had a, a very middle class life or even had a different, uh, a low socioeconomic status, but they've moved themselves up through the corporate ladder of business and industry. But now it's the case they're in control. Because they've done all the right things moving into a position of power and people trust them and they've given them the keys to the castle, now they have power that's unchecked. The context is something whereby the cues are in place. It's a very weak situation or it's a strong situation where some board members may have taken them out to a party and say, hey, here's what we would like for you to do. Um, we'd like to di- for you to direct members of the, the team that goes out and checks the meters on the gas, on the gas lines. And we'd like for you guys to, uh, doesn't matter if it's um, up or down, we want you to round the values up for every for every measurement that you make. It doesn't matter if it's below, if it's 1.1 or 1.2, round it up to two. Now, these, that decision is made and that manager or that CEO execute based upon a dinner he's had with a board member. Now, individuals on the line within the organization, the accountant is beginning to see the, 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 now, when you look at the P&L statements, they're beginning to see profits increasing because of these reports that are coming from the line on the these gas meters that individuals working on the line taking those measurements, they're, they're rounding up. Some person working at the lower level of the organization is perceiving something is wrong, but yet it's the case at the highest levels of the organization, there have been directives given by the ex- chief executive to execute and have this kind of unwritten business policy or, or rule about rounding up in terms of their uh, the gas meter readings. That would lead to uh, a, an instance where the accounting firm is now thinking something is wrong, but nobody's saying anything. Uh, people within the gas organization are thinking, uh, well, something's not right, but I'm not going to say anything. But yet, it's the person who has, there's been a context where there's power 
that has suggested an immoral act to, to, to take place within that organization. So moving on, let's talk about, I think I, I'll ask this question anyway. I wanted to ask you also about how do you frame a situation of two kids that were raised in the same family, same values, highly religious family, say a Christian family, and they grow, they grow up, go to the same schools, and at a, at a certain point, one of them, you know, uh, decides to not become religion, say, um, consider themselves atheists. And the others, uh, the others or the other, uh, is still uh, extremely religious. What, what level of conviction uh, should, can one have? Or what are they, is it a very personal thing or it depends on what kind of experience each individual goes through to make them uh, make any of those choices? Sure. And, and this goes back to some of the research that I've actually um, I published within, within psychology. There's this social psychological construct called self-monitoring where there are some people who are more inclined to be the right person at the right place at the right time, and they will adjust to the environment that's around them, and they won't necessarily deviate. So if it's the case where a person is raised in a religious family, they will subscribe to those cues. Um, they will mention the values that are actually built within that particular cultural setting, either in their family or in their church. At the same time, there's another type of individual who's value-oriented, they can't. They could be placed in a context where their values may be inconsistent with what's in the environment, but yet they're going to execute according or they're going to behave consistent with their values. Now, going to the situation where you have a family in which there are two kids, let's say one is value-oriented where their values that are taught by their parents and their attitudes, they've gotten that from their religious teachings from parents and also from the, the church. But then there's another um, family member in the same setting who's, who's driven more by the, the contextual cues within that set, within a particular setting. So in, at home, at church, he's subscribing to the cues. But yet, when you take that individual and say they go to college or they're placed in a situation where um, they don't necessarily have the, those strong situational cues like at home and at church, then you begin to see them act inconsistent with how they were raised. But these people cognitively, they have no... Um, they have no uh, dissonance. They have no cognitive dissonance. They don't feel bad at all because they're disconnected from what their values, the values that they were taught and the contextual situation in which they were in. So they're, they can dissociate between their values and their behavior as opposed to someone else who or that other sibling who was value oriented. They may have a very difficult time going to a party or going into a situation that's conflicting with their values and their attitudes and beliefs. But in two different in that same context at home, they act just exactly the same. The one child who is more principally driven by their values, attitudes and beliefs, they're going to have some conflict going into some very questionable 
circumstances and situations. However, the other sibling is going to like say, okay, you're a punk, go home. I don't want you around me now because uh, I'm going to have some fun. And right now they're just falling in with, with the, the strength of the situation. It may be a girl that they like, a boy or a girl that they, they like. Um, that's They would like to be perceived as someone who's cool to build that relationship. So it's the context of the situation that's driving them, but they have two dispositional components. They have a disposition called self-monitoring that allows one to be more value-oriented and value-driven but and principled versus another one who tends to be more situationally oriented, flexible, and wanting to be the right person at the right place at the right time. And so, on on the other content that you've um, you've uh, spoke about, like on psychology and anything else that we have covered so far, what books would you recommend that you know people read on, say, behavior economics, psychometrics, and just good psychology psychology books in general? Well, if you're getting into the space and you really want to get you really want to get into the technical components when we begin to talk about artificial and you want to learn about artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence within uh, psychology with computer adaptive tests, computer adaptive learning, uh, it's important to learn item response theory. Um, that's one of the theoretical frameworks that's used now to drive adaptive testing, like what's done at the educational testing service for admissions to colleges and universities across the United States. And also with companies such as um, my, my old company, Illumina Datamatics Assessment and Analytics, where we provide recommendations for a sequence of courses based upon a student's level of working memory capacity, personality components, um, dispositional drive, their cognitive attributes, their behavior attributes. And we make recommendations on a sequence of courses, taking in their information about how much working memory capacity they have, how can they reason with abstract um, things or abstract situations. So, and once again, it's adapting, being able to adjust and adapt to the environment. And now we're building technologies to help people adjust and adapt to the environment. So I would recommend a book by one of uh, a set of colleagues of mine who mentored me when I was a fellow at the Educational Testing Service at Princeton, um, Fundamentals of Item Response Theory, Hamilton, Swaminathan, and Rogers. It only assumes that you have a working knowledge of Algebra one, not very difficult at all, even though the mathematical the proofs are quite difficult. There's another book that I would recommend um, that's it's very easy to read. Both both these texts, you know, you can get through them in say a a, a day or so, a day or two. So it's like 100, 150 pages. The other one's about two hundred. Um the second one is by another colleague of mine at Georgia Tech University, um, Dr. Susan Ibertson. It's item response theory for psychologists. Um and once again, item item response theory is one of the foundational theories used um particularly within the education space. Um, for intelligent systems, um, for um, artificial intelligence and administration of tests, the artificial intelligence administration of a sequence of courses, it, it all goes back to item response theory. Great. Uh, I'll put all those books and links in the description of the podcast on my website. Definitely everyone else can 
can check it out. I mean, we could talk for years. You have so you have so much knowledge and insights in all these things, but you know, I don't want to keep you here. So thank you so much for your time. We can definitely do it again um, at one point. And when is your book coming out? Oh, I already have a book. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I, 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 let me plug that one too. Since yeah, we're please. talking about books. so the, the book that that I that I've written was also by my co-founder, Dr. Larry Davis. It's on flow an information-based theory of challenge skill balance. And once again, it, it, it reinforces some of the concepts I talked about earlier about being able to adapt to your environment. How do you put somebody in the flow zone so that they can learn most, most efficiently? How they could perform um, and be highly engaged in organizations because we're not leveraging the science that we know within psychology to make organizations most efficient, more, more, more and more efficient. So that's a, a book that's written um, specifically for that purpose to, to address some of the issues around um, flow-based design, flow-based engagement systems. They do it within video games. They have INO psychologists design mechanics to keep people engaged in video games, but we don't necessarily do it within organizations. And that's one of the books that I recommend as well. Flow, flow. an information-based theory of challenge skill balance. Awesome. All right, uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your time great hello once again and that was the end of our conversation and just before you go just want to communicate a few things with you uh, quickly if you have uh, enjoyed any of the podcast or this specific podcast episode I would appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family through your social media Twitter Facebook etc etc as well as write me a five-star review on itunes or apple podcast app that would be fantastic it helps me flourish and sustain this podcast as well uh, we also on other platforms like soundcloud uh, stitcher radio um, and all other major podcast platforms so whichever way you're listening to it i would appreciate it if you leave me a review you can also subscribe to the graph podcast through my website graybc.com g-r-e-y-j-a-b-e-s-i.com there you also find some of the blogs that i'm writing sometimes and you get notified as soon as the new episode has been published until next time enjoy and be productive thank you